0: Welcome to Trevecca Community Church's sermon podcast series. Each week we'll be streaming our sermon from within the sanctuary just for you. Then the spirit of the Lord came on me, and he told me to say, this is what the Lord says, that uh, that is what you are saying, house of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its street with the dead. Uh, Skipping down to verse 14, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy to Jerusalem, That you have said to your fellow exiles of the house of israel they are far away from the lord from this land that was given to us for our possession Um, jumping down to verse 18 they will return to it and remove all the vile images and detestable idols i will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them i will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to the vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their heads all that they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can these bones live? This is the question that we've been asking in this season of Lent. This is the question that God asks of Ezekiel as he's standing in a valley filled with dry bones. He's asked, can these bones live? This week I've been caught by how deeply connected this question is with holiness. Holiness is the character of God, but it's also what we have been called to be And friends, whether you've wandered into this sanctuary this morning or you've wandered into a service online, there's something you need to know about this group of people. We are a part of a bigger group of Christians called the Nazarenes. And and holiness is deeply a part of who we are, who God has called us to be. We believe that we are called to be holy as God is holy. And that God's holy love restores the image of God in us and transforms our likeness into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's just something you need to know about us straight from the get-go. It's kind of like if you go on a first date, there are a few things that are really helpful to know right out the gate. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's something that's really helpful to know about us right out the gate. We are a holiness people. It's what God has called us to be. Well, as I read and studied Ezekiel 11 this last week, where God promises to give an undivided heart. In some translations, it says one heart, an undivided heart, and a new spirit to God's people. Of course, I couldn't help but think about the bigger story of the prophet Ezekiel, but I also kept hearing our story. Our story as these people called Nazarenes, the story that we are a part of, I couldn't help but think about not just the story of the Church of the Nazarene at large, but the story of of a woman who was somewhat of a prophet for the Nazarenes. Her name was Mildred Bangs Winecoop. And I couldn't help but connect both of these stories and how Ezekiel and Israel and Mildred and the Nazarenes, They both found themselves at a crisis point in the life of their communities and God gave both of them a similar vision of holiness of this undivided heart and so I want to tell you their stories today. We've named at Trevecca Community Church, we believe that one of the things God's called us to do is formational storytelling. So I wanna tell you today the story of Ezekiel in Israel and the story of Mildred in the church of the Nazarene. I wanna tell you their stories today in case you might find yourself in a place of crisis today. In case you might find yourself in a crisis of faith, a crisis of courage, a crisis of deconstruction. And I hope that their stories offer you a vision of holiness that is bigger than one moment of crisis and that gives an anchor for your soul and a home for your restless heart. So let's begin with Ezekiel. Ezekiel was born into a family of priests in Jerusalem. He was born into a family of priests in the line of priests called the Zadokites. His tribe of priests were the dominant kind of tribe of priests in the temple of Jerusalem at the time. And he would have been raised around not just any temple, Solomon's temple. He was raised in Solomon's temple, which would have been the height of the people of Israel being trained up to be a priest in the temple. The stories of Torah that he heard in childhood, those were his stories. And the teachings of the Pentateuch, those were his teachings. His earliest memories would have been in these holy places every year. Every year, kind of like his Christmas, he would remember when maybe one of his uncles or his grandfather, somebody like that, would have gotten to prepare themselves to enter into the holy of holies this inner space right in the middle of the temple where the glory of God was meant to dwell. And the glory was so powerful. God's holiness was so fierce that they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle that would like dangle out when he walked in just in case, coming face to face with the holiness of God, dropped him dead. And somebody would have to pull him out And Ezekiel would watch that rope probably dangle every year as the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And Ezekiel, like his father and brothers, grandfathers and uncles, was preparing to be a priest. His whole life was set apart for this work. He would have been trained in primarily three areas. The first was basically keeping up temple life, the the sanctuary, the, the worship life of the people of God. Second would have been studying and teaching Holy Scripture so that he knew the Word of God so well. And the third would have been officiating sacrifices, helping the people of God to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrifices meant a whole lot of things, honestly, but one of the most important things that sacrifices was about was dealing with sin. It would have been dealing with sin to help keep these people a holy people. And so once a year, there would be this sacrificial lamb, uh, but there would also be a scapegoat. There would be a scapegoat that they would bring in, and and a priest would lay hands on the scapegoat's head and, and would basically cast all of the sins of God's people that hadn't otherwise been atoned for onto the scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be released into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people far away. And there would also be a a pure land that would be slaughtered. Other sacrifices would be made so that they could draw near to the holy presence of God. We don't know a whole lot about Ezekiel's early years, but we know that this would have been what it would be like to be a young man raised in Jerusalem, trained at Solomon's temple, this great sign of the glory days of Israel, a time when the people of Israel were most alive and vibrant. Well, let me introduce you to Mildred now. Mildred was raised in Seattle, Washington, to a family that knew firsthand the saving grace of God. Her father had been raised in the home of an alcoholic, and her family had been transformed when she found a group of Christians that taught that God's grace could actually change your lives. What do you know? And and it really truly had changed her family's life. They found this group of Christians in the Seattle area who were teaching and preaching and experiencing the grace of God that transforms lives into the likeness of Jesus And Wine Coop's whole family, they experienced this for themselves. It wasn't just teaching and preaching that other people talked about. They could point to stories in their own family where they had seen it. They had witnessed it. And so they helped plant the Seattle First Church of the Nazarene alongside a preacher named Phineas F. Brzee. In fact, Mildred would later write, remembering how he stood before them like Moses... And when he spoke, people just could not help but respond. His words were so genuine and authentic. She also remembers other preachers that were less impactful on her. In fact, she would later write when she was five years old, listening to a preacher kind of rattle on and on about stuff that seemed to have no impact on real life whatsoever. And at five years old, she would pray, oh God, if you let me be a preacher, I will preach sermons that people can understand. (laughs) That's a good prayer. Some of you might start praying that for me, all right? If you would intercede on my behalf. Well, Mildred remembered even in her adult years how the genuine and authentic faith she saw expressed in those services and gatherings changed her. It was real and raw. They might not have always had the most eloquent preaching or even perfect theology, but their faith was real and the way that their lives were being changed by God's grace was undeniable. The holiness movement was just that. It was a movement that people were caught up in. It was alive and vital and Mildred grew up right in the thick of it back to Ezekiel, like I said, we don't know a whole lot about Ezekiel's younger years, the days before exile, but we know that he likely witnessed some of the things that he writes about in his prophecy while he still lived in Jerusalem before he was carried off into exile. You see, this city Jerusalem that he grew up in, it was to be a holy city. In fact, it was set up on a hilltop likened to a lamp on a lampstand, a city on a hill that was supposed to be an example, not just for the rest of Israel, but for the whole world that we serve a holy God who has made us to be a holy people. And Ezekiel was training to be a priest for the holy people. This lamp on the lampstand year after year making sin sacrifices, only he was watching as sin amounted more and more. He witnessed two kinds of sin that he would write about in his prophecy. He basically describes what he witnessed as idolatry and injustice. Idolatry is a failure to love God with a whole undivided heart, mind, soul, and strength. It means that you have a divided heart that is torn into pieces. I mean, sure, some of it might be the Lord's, but but it's been so torn up and dissected and given away other places that God's only been given the scraps that are left over. A divided heart. Injustice, on the other hand, if idolatry is a failure to love God with an undivided heart, injustice is a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Ignoring the laws about care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow, denying food and shelter to the immigrant and the foreigner, and filling your own belly while your neighbor goes hungry. Still every year, a priest would march into the Holy of Holies, rope dangling from his ankle. And every year they would send a scapegoat off into the wilderness and they would sacrifice lambs content that their sin was taken far from them all while they went on in idolatry and injustice. And Ezekiel could sense that there was an illness in the life of these holy people of God, something was wrong. Back to Mildred, Mildred, did everything that a young preacher ought to do. She went to a good school. In fact, she went to two schools, Nazarene schools. She not only got degrees from those schools, she was top of her class, mentored by the president of the college itself, H. Orton Wiley. She even married a preacher. I mean, that's real credibility, right? She did everything that was expected of her. All the right degrees. She got all the right training. And then she began preaching and teaching. She used all the words that she was supposed to use. She prayed all the prayers. But she was continually bothered by this gaping hole between the words that she was saying and teaching and the way that people were living it was that they were supposed to be a people who who were living like heaven on earth right and this was what the holiness people believed that God's grace could transform us that we were not just destined to be sinning in thought word and deed every single day but that God's grace could actually transform us so that it feels like heaven here on earth and yet she looked around and saw folks that were content to go on sinning and thought and indeed as if God's grace could not transform. And she saw this gaping hole in the credibility of what they were saying, the experience of holiness or sanctification. It was like it had become some kind of assembly line, cranking out converts like Ford factories producing automobiles. And she saw at the altar week after week the same people coming to pray the same prayers and performing the same acts with little result in their lives. The same people who spoke of living sinless lives did not seem to be living holy lives. And something in her heart began to break. And at one point she wrote these words. I tried to look a piety I couldn't feel. I shouted when it seemed the right thing to do. I prayed loud when the preacher said we ought. And rather suddenly, the whole unsavory farce broke around my head, leaving me an almost full-fledged skeptic, cold-blooded and adrift. The divine formula upon which I had pinned my faith didn't work. Shortly after that, she became ill. She became physically ill and she needed to move to a new place, a new climate that would help her get stronger and get better. But honestly, it also gave her an excuse to step away for a season. To step away from being in the thick of this church that that was professing a holiness that she wasn't seeing in the fruit of their lives. And it gave her an opportunity to seek after an authentic faith in Jesus... She was sick physically, but so was the holiness movement. It was struggling to survive the generational change from the first generation of holiness to a second generation, and something was wrong. In 597 BC, the Babylonian army laid their first attack on Jerusalem. They left the temple standing in this first attack. They left the temple standing and many Jerusalemites remained, but the whole Zadokite tribe, Ezekiel and all of his family, they were captured, they were chained and shackled and carried off to live in a foreign land. It's what we call exile. Ezekiel lived this traumatic event with his brothers and sisters in Israel, and everyone was trying to grapple and make sense of what this could mean for them. After all, they were God's holy people. God had put them on this earth for a reason. They were God's holy people, and he was one of God's priests. He was a a priest among a holy people trying to prepare them to be holy as God was holy. And here they are on the banks of the river, Chebar in this faraway place in exile in a land that's filled with idols and idolatry because they've never heard of the name of the Lord before. And here they are, far away from Jerusalem in this foreign place when God tells Ezekiel, God's true desire for a holy people, that the real point of all these sacrifices and ritual of lambs and scapegoats, it had never been about just driving sin out of them, but putting a new heart into them, a new heart and a new spirit that would beat for one God alone, undivided, holy unto the Lord. The people of Israel, God's holy people, they were sick. Something was wrong. They were close to death. Babylon had already struck Jerusalem once and they were on their way back to take the rest of Jerusalem. But Ezekiel had seen a vision that had let him know that not even death could put a stop to the new heart that God wanted to give them. Back to Mildred. Mildred finally gets far away from what she felt like at the time were fake forms of religion that were wearying her soul. She takes a teaching position in Japan, teaching Bible and theology, but she finds that here in this new culture it is difficult to communicate the doctrine that she'd been teaching and learning about her whole life it was just hard to translate even with the help of an actual translator something wasn't connecting and and she came to realize that that the eastern mind just thought about these things very differently Uh, the eastern mind worked different than the western mind and and the formula of doctrine did not connect with her eastern students and so she had to find new ways to articulate and communicate important stuff of our faith stuff like creation and justification and salvation and sanctification and holiness she was going to have to find new ways to communicate all of that so there in japan Far away from the original site of the holiness movement that she first encountered as a little girl, a whole culture and world away, Mildred discovers words to describe the relational holiness of God. She articulates that this relationship has always been dynamic and moving, growing and changing, never static or rigid. And these Eastern students, they 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 connect with this. It's like, okay, I can understand this. They, They started to get it. And so she kept teaching it and it was bringing her alive and it was bringing them alive. And over these years, teaching far away in the country of Japan, Mildred writes a theology of love. She puts pen to paper and she describes this relational dynamic of holiness in which the believer is moving ever closer to God. And in this theology of love, sin is a distortion of the image of God. It is a disruption of God's good order. But that means that God's image and God's order, those are real. <laughs> like that is what is real in this world. And sin as just a disruption and a, a, and a distortion, sin is not a substance unto itself. Meaning that sin isn't real, although its impacts in the world, is very real. Sin is not. Or in other words, here's how Mildred puts it. Hang with me here. Here's how Mildred puts it. Holiness is not the absence of sin. Sin is the absence of holiness. Sin is what happens when we have shut off our heart to the love of God and the infilling of the spirit. When we have hearts of stone, sin is what happens. And In that sense, it is real. Its impact on the world is real. But Mildred was saying that sin isn't this substance that we drive out like a scapegoat running into the wilderness. No, sin is something that there's no room for in a heart that is growing in holiness. There's simply no room for things like idolatry and injustice when you have received a new heart and a new spirit in a dynamic relationship with a living God. The formula of holiness might have been dying, but God's holy love never will. Back to Ezekiel. Anointed with the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel begins to prophesy to the exiles. He takes up his pulpit there in this faraway foreign land and he begins to prophesy to the exiles in Babylon. And some of the words probably even got back to their friends and relatives in Jerusalem. You see, he's prophesying that their exile is not the end of God's faithfulness. It is a result of their faithlessness. And guess what? People don't really wanna hear that. And he is confronting them about their disobedience and their idolatry and their injustice, their fake religion filled with sacrifice and ritual that has failed to make them holy. And he tells them to turn to the Lord, even now turn to the Lord and repent and let God give you a new undivided heart. But the people back in Jerusalem do not like this. And they would rather believe that it's Ezekiel and his kind, those troublemakers out there prophesying about the exile, they're the real problem. And now that they're gone, now that they've been driven out to Babylon like a scapegoat driven off into the wilderness, carried off into exile, the people of Israel are pure again. They have been made pure and holy because good riddance Ezekiel, And even if they die, if Babylon were to crush Jerusalem and put an end to the holy people of God, it's not their fault. Their hands are clean. That is all what they placed on Ezekiel. Run, scapegoat, run. Mildred's theology of love is much more widely known today than when she first published it. I'll never forget when I first showed up to a Nazarene event in which they were passing out buttons that had a picture of Mildred's, uh, she had these kind of classic cat eye glasses and they were passing out buttons with her glasses. Like there was a Mildred fan club. Let me tell you, friends, I don't think Mildred could have imagined a world in which she would have a fan club, right? I don't know if you can read it very well, but this is a chalkboard outside of a church that says North Long Beach Church of the Nazarene, vegetables and and fruit thrown at the church while Mildred Winecoop was preaching. And that was before she wrote A Theology of Love. (laughs) After writing A Theology of Love, had it not been for fierce advocates like a man named William Greathouse, she would have been driven out of the church probably, very, very likely. She could have not have imagined that her work would be as widely received as it is today. But it has left quite a mark on the church of the Nazarene. I, I know when it first came out, I've heard some people say that when they first read their, her words, they thought, yes, this is the kind of faith I've been longing for. And I've heard other pastors tell me that they would actually hide copies of her book for fear that their professors or district superintendents might see it. Two years after Mildred died, an article came out that was titled, Why the Holiness Movement Died by Richard Taylor. And in it, he blamed Wine Coop and her definition of sin for the death of the holiness movement. it it, it perhaps was suggesting that if we could just keep haranguing sinners to the altar and driving sin out of them, then maybe the holiness movement would still be alive and well. I wish that Mildred had been alive to respond to Dr. Taylor, and I don't know what she would have said, and I confess that I am not even in the atmosphere of the league that Mildred Weinkoop was in. But perhaps she may have graciously and gently suggested that if the movement died, it was long before her book was published, it was when holiness became a formula. A formula for casting out sin that neglected receiving God's new heart and new spirit, but nobody wanted to admit that the bones were dry. Now, please, friends, do not run out and say, hey, Pastor Shauna said that the holiness movement died. That's not what we're saying today. And here's why. Because the question that we need to be concerned about today is not whether or not the holiness movement has died, is dead, has ever died. The question we need to be concerned about is can these bones live? Can God do something even in dry bones when they are consecrated and offered up with an undivided heart to the Lord? Because God is holy and God's holy love will always make a response for a holy people. We can be sure of that. Robert Jensen suggests that all Christian theology is basically answering the question, can these bones live? Does death win? Do we spend our whole lives in the rat race, trying to evade death and pretending like everything is fine so that we don't have to admit that the bones are dry? Do we keep looking for another formula, another set it and forget it form of faith? Or do we trust that God can bring dead bones to life? Why did I spend all this time this morning telling you those two stories? There are a lot of folks right now talking about deconstructing faith. Perhaps that is a term you've heard. Perhaps it's one you're unfamiliar with. It basically is talking about especially a younger generation, millennials and Gen Z that are sort of taking their faith apart, if you will. Deconstructing faith. You see, if, if you grew up in the church and not all of you did. But if you grew up in the church, when you're young, faith is like the air you breathe. You don't even notice it. I think because it's so natural to who we are, we're made by God. We're made to be in relationship with God. And when we are young and innocent, we don't even have to think about faith. It just is. It is the air we breathe and we don't even realize that it's functioning. But then as we get older, especially after we've lived through some really difficult things, and sometimes perhaps we've experienced a gap in credibility, faith becomes this thing that is like external, something that you can take out and and look at and turn over and examine and put under a microscope and ask the question, does this still make sense? And this is often when you begin to discover gaps in credibility, inconsistencies in the formula, a friend of mine often says, and I love this, he often says, Remember that today's problems were yesterday's solutions. Okay, I didn't get an amen, but somebody needs to write that down. <laughs> today's problems were yesterday's solutions. Solutions. The faith formulas that we were handed as children were a good faith attempt to put into words, to hand down to the next generation and explain this dynamic relationship with a living God that is beyond our capacity for communication or comprehension. And I'm so grateful for brave souls like Ezekiel and Mildred, prophets in their own time, who dared to speak up about the dry bones. Because I believe that if we want to see a movement of God's holiness in this generation, holiness that transforms hearts of stone, rebellious people lost in idolatry and injustice to give to them a new heart that is singularly and undivided, devoted to God alone. If we want to see that kind of movement in this generation, we first have to admit that the bones are dry that the formula is not working, that people are not out there deconstructing their faith because we've gone too soft on sin. They're deconstructing faith because of gaps in the credibility, keeping in mind that today's problems were yesterday's solutions, with grace and humility and love. Friends, I believe this with all my heart. God will always give us Everything we need for holy living. There is no shortage. God will always give us everything we need for holy living. And God will always make a way for our renewal in the image of God. God will forever provide grace that transforms us into Christ likeness. God gave Ezekiel a vision of a new heart and a new spirit, even in a foreign land. God gave Mildred words to describe this relational theology. And and most of all, God gave us Jesus. If you wanna know what holiness looks like, friends, look at Jesus. God will give us everything that we need for holy living in this generation and everyone to follow, every time. And so if you are experiencing, amen. Thank you, Owen. Every generation. If you are experiencing today any kind of crisis, crisis in faith, crisis in courage, if you are experiencing this crisis living in a world that feels like it has lost its mind, my prayer is that you would find peace today in the assurance that God will give you everything you need to weather this storm and the next if you will receive the gifts of God for the people of God and friends God is always giving us gifts God is always pouring out and giving gifts to the people of God there's this really significant song that we are right about to sing I promise There's a really significant song in the Church of the Nazarene that tells the story of who we are. We don't sing it very often, though, because, well, it was written for a different generation. It's kind of a weird, clunky song to sing. Some of you already know what I'm going to say before I've said it. It's called Holiness Unto the Lord. And it is this weird beat and weird tune that I'm sure a few generations ago was rocking And we just, we don't sing it very often because it feels like it was for a different generation. But will you listen to these words? Called unto holiness, church of our God. Purchase of Jesus, redeemed by his blood. Called from the world and its idols to flee. Called from the bondage of sin to be free. Free. Those are some real good words. And guess what? God is always giving us new gifts, new expressions, because we don't have to just stick with an old, weird beat and tune of the past that doesn't really feel like it fits anymore. God is giving us new gifts, fresh expression in every generation. She'll be embarrassed that I'm admitting this, but Trila Curtis has helped to, to rewrite the tune of this song. For this generation so that we can sing along and and so that these words can become not just words of a formula that were handed down to us, but a fresh expression of faith that God is calling us into. After we sing this song, we're going to invite our church board members to the front so that we can pray over a new generation of leaders that God has gifted us with. God is always providing gifts. God is always giving gifts. But first, I want to ask if you will stand and let Trila lead us together in a new anthem of holiness unto the Lord. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us on campus next week, we have discipleship classes beginning at 9 a.m., followed by service at 10.30. That service will be streamed to Facebook Live. We hope to see you there.